0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us in the Bible. We thank you that you have spoken and we can read it here this morning. And Lord, I just pray as we read from the book of Isaiah, would you speak to us in power? Holy Spirit, move in this room. Speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. I pray we understand your word and are able to apply it to our life. Lord God, I pray this is a moment where we meet with you in your word in a powerful way. Come, speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we read Isaiah chapter 1. We launched our Isaiah series and we were introduced to the nation of Judah during Isaiah's uh, term as a prophet and we saw very, very clearly that the nation of Judah was a very, very sinful nation deserving of God's wrath and judgment. Although they thought of themselves as God's children God said to them their deeds were so evil it was as if they were offspring of evildoers. Though they were very religious and observed ceremonies and sacrifice, God criticized them because they did not seek justice or care for needy people in their midst. Um, And you might remember that I only read from the first 18 verses of chapter 1 last week, Um, but actually the rest of the chapter continues in a similar vein. In, In fact, the language in the second half of Isaiah 1 is even stronger. In the second half of Isaiah chapter 1, God compares the nation of Israel to a whore. Essentially says, you've been so unfaithful to me, God says, you've been so unfaithful to me, <laughs> you're like a whore. That's that's, how that's what your deeds are like. So we've seen in Isaiah chapter 1 that Judah is a very, very sinful, unfaithful wicked people. But there was, of course, a glimmer of hope last week um, that I preached on very br- briefly. Verse 18 itself says this, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Judah is this wicked nation, but God says, I-, I will give you forgiveness. Believe in me and I will forgive you. Your sins, though they are like scarlet, will be white as snow. And that's the hope we cling to as Christians, isn't it? We know we're all sinners. We know we've all done things wrong. And yet God is merciful and offers us the free gift of forgiveness. That all who would believe in Jesus Christ would have their sins forgiven and would enter into eternal life. Ah, that's amazing. We don't deserve that forgiveness and yet that is what God offers us in Jesus Christ. As we come to turn to Isaiah chapter 2, I want you to imagine that Isaiah the prophet is looking down upon the city of Jerusalem, upon the nation of Judah, whom he just prophesied about in chapter 1. And all he sees is all the wickedness that he's just declared, all the lack of justice, all the lack of love, all the, all the evil that's going on in the city of Jerusalem. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, it's almost like Isaiah, this prophet, turns and sees a different vision of the city of Jerusalem. He, he looks and sees the reality of Jerusalem, which is wicked and evil and unfaithful to God, and then he turns and God gives him a new vision for the new Jerusalem. It, he sees in his vision, in chapter 2 that I'm about to read to you, the Jerusalem that never was, the Jerusalem that should have been. This is what Jerusalem should have been like. The Jerusalem that will one day come to exist. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 2, and I'm just going to start off by reading uh, the first five verses of this chapter. Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah starts that chapter by saying it shall come to pass in the latter days. And so what Isaiah is doing in chapter 2 is prophesying about the new heavens and the new earth. It says in the Bible that um, Jesus came and died on the cross and then rose from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven. One day, Jesus is returning, and when he comes, when he returns, he will establish his kingdom upon the earth. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Everything will be made new. And what Isaiah prophesies in chapter 2 here is about the new heavens and the new earth. This will be what Jerusalem is like at the end of time, once evil has been defeated and all has been set right. And so consequently these verses are amazing. The Jerusalem described in Isaiah chapter 2 is beautiful and part of what I want to do this morning is just unpick what the new Jerusalem will be like and I hope as I do so our hearts will be warmed and we we'll yearn for that day when God recreates all the universe and creates this new Jerusalem for us. So the first thing Isaiah says about this new Jerusalem is the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Now when Isaiah says that, It's possible he's talking physically. It's possible that in the new heavens and the new earth, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, will be lifted up physically even higher so that it's the highest city in all the world. It's possible he's talking physically. But I think primarily Isaiah is speaking of the spiritual symbolism of being high and lifted up. When God recreates, Um, the new heavens and the new earth, the mountain of the Lord will be raised higher than any other mountain and will be lifted up above the hills. And so to lift something up or someone up biblically is to say this person is exalted. He is raised above me in authority. I want to submit to him for he is of supreme importance. If you lift someone up in the Bible, you're saying this person has supreme importance in my life. He has authority over me and I'm under him in terms of submission. And so this is what Isaiah is saying, is the mountain of the Lord shall be raised up higher than any other mountain. In other words, the importance of God throughout the land will be raised higher than anyone else in all of creation. Often we, we sing to God, don't we? I lift you up, I exalt you. Those kind of lyrics in some of the songs that we sing. And what we're saying is, in our lives, we're making God the highest. We're making him the greatest. We're making him the most important. And so what I desire too is saying is, in the latter days, it will come to pass that God's mountain will be exalted, so that God is raised so high that all the world recognize that God himself has supreme importance. There'll be no other mountain higher. There'll be no other hill that raises above God. God will be seen in the eyes of all the world to have supreme importance. He will be lifted up above everybody else. I don't know if you remember from last week, I was talking about Isaiah chapter one, and this is what God said of Judah in Isaiah chapter one. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib but Israel does not know. In other words, Judah is so foolish, it doesn't recognise its own... Judah does not recognise their own master, their own God. An ox is smart enough to know who owns it. A donkey is smart enough to know where its master puts the food. But Israel is too foolish to even know that God is their master, that God is their ruler. And so you see this amazing contrast in Isaiah chapter 1, Judah is foolish and cannot recognize who God truly is. In Isaiah chapter 2, God is lifted up in the highest mountain so that all the world recognize God's power and authority and might. In Isaiah 2, everything is put to right as God, the mountain of the Lord, the house of God, is raised up over all. God is lifted up. He is victorious. All the world recognize his authority and ultimate importance. Now, secondly, you'll see in those verses that all the nations flow to the mountain. That's the end of verse 2. And many peoples come in verse 3. Now, we know, don't we, that rivers flow down from mountains. But in Isaiah chapter 2, people flow up mountains at the end of verse 2. So this is a supernatural move of God in the world. So God's mountains lifted high, and all the peoples come, flow up the mountain to meet with God. This for me is one of the most glorious things about heaven. The most glorious, one of the most glorious things we can look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. That all the nations will come and be represented there and worship the Lord at the mountain of God. There'll be Israelites there. There'll be British people there, including hopefully a large contingent from Ferrum. There'll be Australians and Argentinians and Austrians. There'll be Indians and Indonesians and Italians. There'll be Nigerians and Namibians and North Koreans. There'll be Zambians and Zimbabweans. All the nations will flow to the mountain of the Lord. I may have made some of those words up and apologies if I've mispronounced what it means to exist in one of those countries. All the nations will come to the mountain of the Lord. Oh, it will be glorious to see such multicultural unity at the mountain of the Lord. Such is the wisdom and authority of God that all the nations are pulled in like rivers flowing down mountains people will flow up mountains to gather together and worship the lord god i just think that i just think that's an amazing picture of heaven that's going to be so good imagine how different nations will worship god and yet all be unified together in some glorious cacophony or harmony of worshiping god together i think that's going to be so exciting to be gathered at that mountain with all the nations of the world worshipping God together. Now, thirdly, it tells us why the nations have come. The nations come to the mountain of the Lord in those verses, in verse 3, that God will teach them his ways, and that they, the nations, may walk in God's paths. It says the word of the Lord goes out from Jerusalem. So all the nations gather together to God in this new heaven and this new earth and they hear God's teaching and they don't just hear it and ignore it but they walk in the paths of God's teaching so here we have all the nations, many peoples gathered to the mountain of the Lord and they hear God's teaching and they go out and live it They, they go out and walk in the paths of the Lord they live out the instructions of this book. Now, if that doesn't sound wonderful to you, then I suggest you you read more of this book, because let let me just focus on the two greatest commandments for a moment. The two greatest commandments in the Bible are this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. So these people are coming to the mountain of the Lord, they're hearing that commandment, and they're walking in that Commandment. So the new heavens and the new earth are full of many peoples and many nations, all loving God with all that they are. And the second commandment is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so the new heavens and the new earth are going to be full of people loving God with their whole being and loving others as if they were themselves. They're loving others as much as they love themselves. That is going to create a truly wonderful wonderful world i I think of my own life and the selfishness and the pride with which sometimes i exist in on this earth i know i don't truly love others like i love myself in reality i think of how different my life would be maybe if i did really love others like i love myself And, and sometimes by god's grace by the power of the holy spirit i do live a little bit like that But imagine an entire world of people who love God with their entire being and love each other as if they love themselves. That's going to be a wonderful community to be a part of. That's going to be full of life and energy and care. I can just imagine us growing food and and serving food to one another and coming together and having massive meals and just loving and caring for one another. That's the world. That is what this world should be like now. That is what this world will be like when Jesus returns in glory and recreates the heavens and the earth. People coming to hear God's teaching and living it out truly and perfectly. Fourthly, in those verses, it tells us there will be peace. Have a look at verse 4. He, God, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. I don't think Isaiah is anticipating lots of disputes in heaven. Rather, he's he's describing a world in which everyone submits to God as judge. They recognize his authority and so submit to him. And so instead of political argument and complete disarray and a conflict of interest in the new heaven and the new earth, all disputes are just settled by God and we'll we'll live without such arguments. Brexit won't be an issue in heaven. Hallelujah. Praise God. Uh, And then it says in in verse 4, continued, They shall beat their swords into plowshares their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, what these people are doing is taking their weapons, their swords and their spears, and they're turning them into farming equipment. The weapons are no longer necessary. There is no war. No, one, no, no, no two nations are going against each other in war. No two people are going to fight. There will be complete and utter peace, and so we won't need swords and we won't need spears. We'll just need farming equipment to grow food and to live and eat and enjoy life together. That's, that's the new heavens and the new earth as described by Isaiah chapter 2. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. The mountain of the Lord is lifted up and all come and worship him. All recognize God's true authority. There are many nations all coming with their different cultural ideas and coming and worshipping together in a wonderful way. All worshipping the Lord God, Jesus Christ, the King of this kingdom. And God brings his teaching and all hear the teaching and respond to the teaching and live it out, walk in the paths of God. And therefore there is peace on earth. No more war, no more conflict, just peace and farming. If if you don't want to be a farmer, then hard luck. Um, I think we'll all love being farmers in the new heaven and the new earth. Doesn't that just sound wonderful? That's the world I want to live in. You know, I love life. I do love life. But there's a very large part of me that longs for that day when Jesus will return and establish this kind of world on the earth, in the new earth. And and if you're a Christian here this morning, you should have that very same longing. That doesn't mean you hate life, but it means you do long for this amazing future where God returns and is worshiped and all things are put right. It will be an amazing, amazing time. Having seen that vision, Isaiah ends this little section with a command. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Christ Church, Pharaoh, in view of Isaiah's vision that he sees in in Isaiah chapter 2, in view of this new Jerusalem that shall come to pass in the latter days, I say to us as a church, and I say to you individually, Come, church, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come, church, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? When Isaiah wrote those words, he had some idea what it meant to walk in the light of the Lord. But now, as Christians, we have a a more complete picture of what it means to walk in God's light. Because we have Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Jesus Christ was God and human flesh come into the world. And, and God describes the world as darkness and describes Jesus Christ as light. He comes as the light of the world. Everything he does was perfect and right and righteous. And so that's like light shining in the darkness. He's the one who brings truth. And that's like light shining in the darkness. Everything about Jesus Christ is is light and bright and glorious. It says in John, Jesus says in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so to follow Jesus is to not walk in darkness and to walk in light. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I'd encourage you to follow Jesus Christ because to follow Jesus is to walk not in darkness but in the light of life. 1 John 1 verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So to follow Jesus, to believe in him, to believe in his life and death and resurrection from the dead, to see him as God himself come into the world, is to walk in light. And when we walk in light, we are cleansed of our sin. To walk in light is to know forgiveness, to know we are blameless in the sight of God. And to walk in light is also to have fellowship with one another. So if you want to walk in the light this morning, follow Jesus, believe in him, receive forgiveness from your sins, and have fellowship with other believers in the church. Maybe your challenge here this morning, if you're thinking, I don't know where I'm walking in the light, am I doing a good job of walking in the light? I would encourage you to read your Gospels, to open up uh, the Gospel of Matthew, or of Mark, or Luke and John, this afternoon maybe, and read it, and see the light of Christ in the Gospels and say, I'm going to walk in in Jesus' footsteps. The path that he walked before me, I will follow. That's what it is, to walk in light. But when Isaiah wrote those words, Isaiah was anticipating a Messiah to come. He was um, seeing a future king of Israel, because as we read the book, we'll discover... um, what Isaiah says about this amazing king to come in the future. But he didn't know, he didn't know the name Jesus Christ because Jesus had not yet come into the world. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. So I want to I focus a little bit more keenly and focus on what Isaiah meant when he wrote Isaiah 2, verse 5. What, what did Isaiah mean when he said, O house of Jacob, walk in the light of the Lord? And I believe... His instruction there is linked to the vision he's just seen. It's to walk in the light of the Lord for Isaiah in chapter 2 it is to believe the vision for Jerusalem that Isaiah has just described through the prophecy of God. To walk in the light of the Lord is to live in such a way as to create by your lifestyle the perfect Jerusalem, Isaiah described. He's speaking to the nation of Judah. He's speaking to the city of Jerusalem. And he's saying, this is what it could be like. This is what it will be like. So why don't you start living like that now here on the earth? And what I don't mean is that we can create that perfect Jerusalem in our own strength by living the right way. No, Jesus Christ returns and creates that perfect Jerusalem. But what what I am saying is that we can live like, in a sense, like that new Jerusalem is already here on earth. By the power of God. So let me explain what I mean. Given that the mountain of the Lord will be the highest mountain in all the earth in the New Jerusalem, let me ask you this morning, are you lifting God up as the highest authority in your life today? Given that all the nations and many peoples will gather Are you a people gatherer today? Are you gathering up the people around you, the many nations around you? Are you not scared of cultural boundaries in order to share the gospel and bring people into the kingdom of God? Given that we will gather to hear God's teaching and to live it out in the new heavens and the new earth, are you focused? Are you practising and prioritising hearing God's teaching in the word and living it out today? And given that there will be peace on earth, are you a peacemaker today? Are you the sort of person in your workplace or where you live, your family, who causes conflict and troubles and difficulties? Or are you the sort of person who creates peace and and who who? reconciles people together and has good relationships with those around you? Are you a peacemaker here on earth today? And this is what Isaiah means, to walk in the light of the Lord. It's to be inspired and challenged by Isaiah's vision. So I want to challenge you this morning. Are you lifting God up as your highest authority? Are you gathering people in your life? Are you prioritizing God's teaching and living it out? Are you a peacemaker? in your life? Are you living like you're already in the new heavens and the new earth? Because if you get lots of practice here on earth, you're going to be really good at it when you get to heaven. So Isaiah sees this vision of Jerusalem and calls the whole nation of Judah, the whole city of Jerusalem, to walk in the Lord's light. But as he does so, it's almost as if he catches again a glimpse of Isaiah chapter 1. Imagine, as I was saying at the start, Isaiah, he's got the old Jerusalem there, the reality of what Jerusalem is like on his left-hand side, and then on his right-hand side, he's got this wonderful, perfect vision of what Jerusalem truly could be, what it truly should have been, what it will be in the future. And as he comes to the end of verse 5, it's almost as if Isaiah just catches the, the current reality of Jerusalem back in the corner of his eye. And as he catches the reality of Jerusalem, he realizes there is one very important barrier, a wall that must come down. If, Jer- if Jerusalem is to be this perfect city, then there's, something that, there's one thing that definitely, definitely needs to change in the current, the current city of Jerusalem. And that thing, that wall that must fall down is the pride of man. And so I'm going to read to you verses 6 to 22. I'm not going to go through all these verses in as much detail, but I want you to see as I read these verses how critical God is and how critical Isaiah is of pride. If you don't don't get these from these verses, then I haven't read it very well because it it is blindingly obvious when you get to the end of this passage I'm about to read you that God hates pride. So Isaiah 2, verses 6 to 22. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and and of fortune-tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. And to the moles and to the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath, for of what account is he? What Isaiah describes in those verses is the great and terrible day of the Lord. In order to establish a perfect world on earth, the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus Christ must come in judgment against the sin of the world. He he must oppose and defeat evil in the world. And so there is a day of judgment. It's called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. There is a day of judgment coming in the future. And and that's why we seek to warn as many people as possible about this truth in the Bible. We want to warn people of the day of the Lord that is coming, that they can take refuge in Christ. By believing in Jesus Christ, they can find safety and security. But what I want to highlight from that passage is that when Jesus Christ comes again in judgment, when God comes in the day of the Lord, he comes particularly in judgment against pride, against the pride of man. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. Verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. In the next verses, the Lord is against the cedars of Lebanon, against the lofty mountains, against the uplifted hills, against the high towers, against the fortified walls, against the ships of Tarshish. And then in verse 17, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. If you haven't worked this out yet, God opposes the proud. God hates pride. In the new heavens and the new earth, the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up. But right now, what men and women do in their lives is they lift themselves up, and they lift other men and women up. They build up mountains on earth that are raising up people in pride. When we boast to other people, that's exactly what we're doing. When we, when we boast amongst others, we're saying, oh, I'm fantastic at this. I'm brilliant at this. What we're doing is we're essentially building ourselves a little mountain, a little mountain of Duncan over here when I do boasting to raise myself up over and above other people in my life. Christianity begins with humility. Christianity begins with humility because God opposes the proud. And if you're a Christian, you'll know this, the humility that Christianity starts with, because Christianity starts with not a, oh, I'm so fantastic, God's going to save me. No, Christianity, true Christianity, starts with a humility that says, I'm, I'm a sinner. I have done wrong things. I am not worthy to stand in the presence of God. I am not worthy to know God. I, I just not. I've just done too many things that are evil and I know that God is good and holy and perfect. How could a good, perfect God possibly, in, possibly meet with little wretched me? C- Christianity begins with that humility of realizing that we are people who have done things wrong. And so we confess our sins. Oh, we pray and say, Lord, I'm not worthy for your forgiveness, but I, I read in Scripture that Jesus Christ died on the cross that I might be forgiven. I, I'm unworthy of that, and yet it, this is what you're telling me, Lord, so I'm going to believe in Christ. I'm going to receive your forgiveness. I'm gonna, if that's true, Lord, I want forgiveness because I desperately, desperately need it. Christianity starts with humility. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you think the new heavens and the new earth sound pretty good, this is what God would ask with you ask of you, that you show humility, that you confess that you have done things wrong and ask for God's forgiveness and believe in Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven. But Christians know this. The Christian life does not just start with humility. It goes on and continues in humility through all things. If you're a Christian, you should be a very, very humble person. My prayer and hope this morning is the Holy Spirit would come in our midst and break pride in our lives. I pray even now the Holy Spirit would just be be poking you in different areas and saying, this is an area in which you have shown pride. This is an area in which you have not been humble. This is an area where you think you're fantastic. And actually, I want you to know that that area where you're fantastic is a gift that I've given to you. So you shouldn't be proud about that area. You should be giving me thanks and the praise for that area of gift that I've given to you. I pray as a church that would be full of humility. I pray for myself that I'd be full of humility. I pray for each of us that we would be full of humility. And in fact, I want to invite you to pray a dangerous prayer this morning. A dangerous prayer is this. Lord humble me the reason that's a dangerous prayer is because often the way god humbles us is to break down the things we've built up for ourselves and that can be a very painful thing um often when people pray that prayer i know in my own life when i've prayed that prayer lord humble me god's taken areas in which i've been successful and and turned them to failure and i I thought god what's going on and i've realized that it's god been answering that prayer of, of me asking for humility. So if, you, if you're bold enough this morning, I'd invite you to pray that prayer. Lord, humble me, because God opposes the proud and God lifts up the humble. Have a look at verse 22, the end, the end of the chapter. This is, this is the command of Isaiah chapter 2. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. If the pride of man will be brought low, and if the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up, on this earth, here and now, we need to stop regarding man. We need to stop giving mankind, other human beings, ourselves, the praise and the glory and the the trust and the authority. We need to stop making men and women the ultimate authority in our lives. And we need to start lifting God up instead when Isaiah mentions the breath in the nostrils, it's a reference to Genesis 2. Uh, and in Genesis 2, it says, when God created man, he, he gave them breath in their nostrils. And so what Isaiah is, is saying is, why are you regarding man? Why are you praising man? Why are you giving man the authority in your life? He's just someone God created. He, he's, he's got breath in his nostrils like every other human being on the earth. God created him. So if you think that person's fantastic, then..." Give God the regard. Give God the praise. Lift God up, for he is the one who created that person. He is the one who created you. Stop worshipping men and women. Stop lifting them up. Stop, stop, in, stop in pride lifting ourselves up. Instead, know that their breath and our breath is a gift from God. So, on the basis of Isaiah chapter 2, as I draw to a close this morning in the latter days it shall come to pass that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the mountain of the lord will be raised up higher than any other mountain and the nations will come and hear teaching and go out living in the commands of the lord and there shall be peace on earth and in light of that amazing future which jesus christ has won for us by his death on the cross we must walk in the light of the lord Let's leave here walking in the light of the Lord this morning. And we must, verse 22, stop regarding man. Stop lifting up man, paying, paying regard to man, giving the worship to man. But instead, give all worship and praise and glory to God, lifting him up in our lives. I'm going to pray for us for that. I'm going to thank God for this new Jerusalem that is coming, the wonderful new heavens and the earth that I cannot wait for. And I'm going to pray in the meantime that we would live in the light of the Lord. And stop regarding man. So, so let's stand. I'm going to invite the 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 band to come up as well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your forgiveness that we do not deserve. Thank you so much for this amazing future that you've laid out in Isaiah chapter 2. Thank you that Jesus Christ has won this future for us, that all who believe in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life, will enter into the new heavens and the new earth, will know the mountain of the Lord lifted high over all the earth, that all people in the world will worship the Lord and know that he is the ultimate authority on earth, that all the nations would gather to hear the teaching of the Lord and would leave living out those amazing instructions that there would be peace on earth perfect peace no more tears no more death but just perfect peace across the entire world lord we thank you and we look to that future with great anticipation lord we cannot wait to be there we long for it it's going to be so so good but lord we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, that before we get there, before that time comes and you in your ultimate wisdom know when the right time is. In the meantime, before that happens, we pray we would walk in the light of the Lord. We pray we would follow in the footsteps of Jesus, living righteously in all that we would do. Come Holy Spirit, empower us to do that, to live in your light. And I pray we would stop regarding man and start giving you all the glory and the praise. Lord, I pray you would break pride in our hearts this morning. If we've been lifting ourselves up, would you alert us to that and change us, Heavenly Father? If we've been regarding other men and women and thinking they're the most powerful, they're the most important, or they're the ones who rule over our lives, I pray you would break that, Lord God, and remind us that you are the King. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. You are the ultimate authority. You will rule. You will reign from Jerusalem on the earth. And Lord, I pray we would start living like it right now. For your glory, I pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.